solution. Another one was I developed an electronic log box for realtors. So when you go to show the house, in the old days you had brass log boxes and they were break-ins into people's homes by, by crooked uh, realtors who would get in part-timers and, and I had an incident where I was listed a home in Pittsburgh and uh, somebody came in and robbed, went in through the front door. The cops said it most likely uh, this is a very real Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I'm really excited to have Mir Imran the executive chairman of Ronnie Therapeutics. Mir, thanks for doing this. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I really want to talk about your newest company, but I, I'm just fascinated with all the things you've done over your career. Why don't we start with why don't we start with your newest invention you've been getting the most the most press and excitement about? Well, that would be Rani Therapeutics that I've been doing for the last few years. It's really one of the most uh, exciting things I've ever done. And I've started more than 20 companies. And what makes it so exciting is, is the sheer number of patients that this could potentially impact. Tens of millions of people. You know, at least half our population has at least one or more chronic diseases. 140, 150 people, million people. The good news for many of those conditions is that there are some amazing drugs available today. And now we have these biologic drugs that really have a big impact on the quality of life. The only downside to biologic drugs is they all have to be injected. They cannot be taken otherwise as pills. And, you know, several years ago, I sort of stumbled on this question, you know, why is it that biologics have to be injected? Why can't they be taken as pills? And there's a very simple answer in that is biologic drugs are proteins. They're made out of proteins and our gut is designed to break down proteins and digest them, you know, so they're not compatible. So if you take biologic drug orally, it will get digested and absorbed, not as drug, but little bits and pieces as if it was a piece of hamburger. So, and the only way it gets absorbed is through injections. But that hasn't prevented people from trying. For the last 50 years, this problem has attracted uh, more than 100 groups to solve it. And, and the primary focus has been small peptides like insulin. And insulin probably has been tried many times. The problem of the enzymes digesting the, the drugs is such that uh, you cannot really win that battle. And, but people have tried using some novel chemistries to get some absorption. And those that have been successful get less than 1% of the drug absorbed in the bloodstream. So this was a really tough problem, tried 100 times before. Lots of dead bodies in, the, in, in its wake, failures. So I, I took my engineering background and understanding of anatomy and physiology to ask a very simple question. And I knew one of the thing, key ingredients in that is 
our intestines don't have sharp pain receptors. So anyway, uh, that was the journey I started a few years ago and created a technology that basically it's a tiny robotic pill that goes, uh, you take it in water just like any other capsule, goes into the intestine and delivers a pain-free injection. And we can put any biologic drug in it. And so this is one of the most exciting things because the sheer impact on, on a number of people. Yeah, we'll have to get some of your footage from your videos when we when we do the YouTube version of this so people can see. It, it's pretty amazing. I, I feel bad for the people who are just listening on audio. But, you know, your videos that show, like like you said, goes down like a pill and then essentially opens up and, and has the... Are, what are those things that are going up into into the, I mean, they look like little tiny needles. What are they that come out of the pill to, to inject? So, so uh, you know, so when you think about an injection, you think of metal needles and liquid being pushed through. When I started thinking about it, I said, nobody in their right mind would want to swallow metal needles every day, no matter how you safe you try and make it. So I, I decided to go with sugar needles. So, you know, I experimented with sugar, injectable grade sugar, and a number of experiments figured out how to do that. And we filled the needle with the drug in dry form. So, and we delivered the entire needle, and, which has the drug inside it, into the intestinal wall. The needle gets absorbed and so does it. So it's a very small needle and totally pain-free. I've taken probably two dozen capsules just, you know, before we did any external human testing, I wanted to make sure that there was no bad sensations when it was, when it was delivered. You got to be your own guinea pig, basically. Absolutely. So, and, and can you explain that process where, again, it goes down, it goes into the digestive tract. How, what is happening that is pushing those sugar needles up in, into the... Yeah, so this is, that, that's, a, that's a really fascinating part of it. So it has a protective coating, the capsule, that is pH sensitive. So the acidic environment in the stomach uh, cannot penetrate that. It, it only dissolves at a pH which is higher, around six and a half. So when, when, it, when, when it passes into the intestine, the pH of six and a half is reached, the coating dissolves, water gets in, and what, what you have inside is a balloon, plastic balloon, tiny plastic balloon, which has two chemicals that are separated by a pinching device, pinch valve, and that itself is dissolvable. So exposure to intestinal fluid dissolves that valve. The two ingredients mix and produce carbon dioxide. And the two ingredients are really what you find in Alka-Seltzer. So the two ingredients in Alka-Seltzer, I took those separated, you know, in, in separate parts of it, when the valve dissolves, it inflates the balloon, and that provides the pressure to a micro syringe that pushes the needle into the intestinal wall. The, the balloon also positions the syringe perpendicular to the intestinal wall. So that's the other function of the balloon. And as soon as the needle is delivered, it, it um, deflates, the syringe itself dissolves, and all you're left with is a balloon, which is like a uh, bell pepper skin or a tomato skin. It passes out safely. So we're using this very simple, the safest chemical reaction you can think of. There are no electronics. There are no metal components. Uh, it's all polymers and material science uh, interacting with body chemistry. And, and how much have you guys raised so far? So we have raised just shy of 200 million. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, thank you. And it, it's been, you know, 
when investors first started looking at this, they were really skeptical because of the many failures in this area, people who have tried before. But when they saw that we were what we were doing with the uh, swallowable, in fact, it was labeled as a robotic pill by the Wall Street first story on this. And that stuck. And we demonstrated data, which was absolutely amazing. The bioavailability exactly the same as an injection. And it was really the proof on of delivery. And we've so far, we've delivered 10 different biologic drugs with amazing results in animal models and in and one drug in humans. That's exciting. You know, I think for me, I mean, you talked about how half the population has has some disease. It's, I certainly see that in my family. You know, my my grandpa, who is my hero, he had diabetes and mm-hmm. and certainly other family members. One of the things that I think is really fascinating for me is looking at it for children. You know, you think oh, yeah. about those those kids who have to take injections constantly. I mean, hemophilia kids, people, kids with other chronic disease, diabetes, type 1 diabetes, uh, many other things. I don't, I don't know any adults that like taking lots of needles, but no, I I think exactly. You know, we did uh, intuitively, we knew that people would really gravitate towards pills, but we decided to do a survey with Frost and Sullivan and more than close to 90% of patients and as many, you know, 85, 90% of physicians said they would switch to a pill if it was available for that particular drug. And uh, so it was no, I was actually surprised to see that there were 10% of uh, patients who wanted to stick to the <laughs> needles. To the needles. <laughs> yeah. There's always those late adopters. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> when you think about a breakthrough of this level, what are what are some of your principles of innovation? You know, there's been so many failures before. So many people wouldn't even try in the first place. Um, what are, what are some of your, your mindsets or your, your principles that you approach innovation like this with? It's actually very simple. I, I, I believe that innovation is driven by problems. You know, the old adage problem or, or you know, a, a, a challenge or whatnot is the mother of invention. And, and uh, that is really true. I start with the asking the question, framing the question correctly. And that really requires some thoughtful approach to the problem. And, and in this case, the f- framing was fairly simple. You know, a hundred times people, very smart people tried and failed with the chemistry-based approach. I decided with my engineering background, I said, I can deliver an injection. And I knew that there was there were no pain sensors in the intestine. So combine, those two things combined. I, then the, the thing that took the longest, believe it or not, is how do you push the needle? You know, I didn't, I wasn't willing to use spring motors or, you know, solenoids. It, it just didn't make sense. So I was actually having, I had, I had had a very hot, spicy meal and I had uh, heartburn around midnight and I sat down with a couple of Alka-Seltzers and I was uh, watching the bubbles come up and it, it struck me that that would be the best energy source and the next morning I went and tried it and sure enough, I could inflate a plastic balloon very easily. So uh, it was just framing up the problem in a way that um, leads you to the solution. So I I think that every solution is contained in that understanding of the problem and framing of the problem. That's great. How many patents do you think you have? Issued and pending close to 800. Wow. And and how many many companies now? It's over 20, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
So, I, I mean, some of the most notable ones, one, one thing, you know, you might, I'm sure you've seen, is when you go through airports and you have to go through those scanners and you raise your hand and that spins around you. That I did that. It wasn't a medical thing, but it, you know, it was, uh, again, driven by problem. After uh, 9-11, I started thinking about how can we use technology to better secure important places. So that was, uh, took me two years to frame the problem correctly. And, and, you know, you want to detect plastic knives and ceramic knives and plastic guns that are not detectable with metal detectors. And so that was an example of just, just problem leading me to a solution. Another one was I developed an electronic logbox for realtors. So when you go to show the house, in the old days, you had brass logboxes and there were break-ins into people's homes by by crooked uh, realtors who would get in part-timers. And, and I had an incident where I was listed a home in Pittsburgh and uh, somebody came in and robbed, went in through the front door and the cops said it was most likely uh, this re- realtor who's been doing this and we can't catch him. So I said, well, we got to solve that problem. And that turned into a company and it's standard in the industry. But those are just two of the non-medical things. But a number of other medical innovations uh, came just because by asking the right question. Or, you know, I read a lot of medical literature. So there are um, nuggets of information. For instance, I'll give you one other example, if I may. Chronic pain is a big problem. People have suffered from that. And there's one solution called spinal cord stimulators stimulation. It's a new, a tiny electrical stimulation device that stimulates, uh, they place a wire over the spinal cord and stimulate it. Well, the success rate of that is probably 50% at best. But because this is such a debilitating condition, people are willing to go for that 50% solution. But then I, I said, well, why can't it be better? Why can't it be closer to 100%? And, and what is, so you start asking the question, what is the path the pain signal takes? So if you're hurting, if you have a knee pain, this, your nerves in the knee are taking pain back to the brain and through the spinal cord. So it became obvious that if you block the pain before it gets into the spinal cord, you would have, a total, you know, you know, total removal of pain and without any other side effect. And we were able to demonstrate that and it got FDA approval. A lot of people are benefiting from it today. What's that one called? It's called uh, uh, dorsal root ganglion stimulation. So it's kind of a (laughs) DRG stimulation. That's fascinating. You know, there's another one that just, it affects people it's I mean, think about the long-term quality of life issues of just oh, the yeah. chronic pain, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and do I understand like that fifteen of your fifteen of your previous companies have either been acquired or IPO'd? Yeah, that's quite a track record. Yeah, I mean, you know, I can tell you that uh, most, not all, but most of those companies came, they all have some problem along the way that they came close to failing. And it was just my sheer willpower and uh, not letting uh, a good thing go, you know, so it's it's hard work. It's not doesn't come easy. As you know, you're an entrepreneur and, and it, it's uh, fraught with problems. But you know, as you were saying about the, the children that you're helping, failures are inevitable when you're pushing the boundaries. But when those successes happen, it is amazing because it's more than a success for me. It's really 
success for the patients. And so it's, it's, to me, it's, it has such a big personal payoff, more than monetary stuff. Yeah. I, I'm interested, you know, creating an invention that works is hard enough, but adding on top of that, now you have to build a business around it. I mean, just, you know, it's like I, multiplies you know, I, the difficulty. Oh yeah. But I realized early on in my career, in my very early in my teens and twenties that I can, I could invent things, but unless I commercialize it, no one is going to benefit from it. It's a paper. It's like publishing a paper. You know, you, you file a patent and then you, you don't commercialize. The hard part is, uh, is bringing it to life. And along the way, you have to come up with a, you know, a hundred more inventions to, to make that initial concept work. Uh, and that's why Rani has 300 patents filed and 170 issued. Because it's not just one invention. In that one invention are embedded dozens of other inventions. I'm interested in what some of your principles of entrepreneurship are. So, you know, you've got a problem, you define it correctly, you know, now you've got the invention that actually works. Then it comes to everything else for company building. What are what are right. some of your approaches or what do you feel like are some of the lessons of, of doing this for all these decades yeah. now. So I, I think the biggest decision is, do you start a company? You, you, let's say you identify a problem, you identify a solution to that problem, and then do you start a company or not? So it really boils down to business analysis. So I actually start that analysis to the problem. So when I'm selecting, you know, you encounter hundreds of problems in here if you're looking for problems. How do you pick the right one? How do you pick the one that is most important? So I have developed criteria so uh, to pick the problem. So the question, you, a simple question you ask is, is the problem worth solving? And uh, there's there's a checklist of criteria I've created for, for me. And if it looks like it's a really important problem, I would then start thinking about solution. And then once you, you have a, you know, a dozen solutions that pop up, some of them are not worth thinking about. But as you come up with a, a solution or a series of solutions, you have to ask the question, is this solution worthy of commercialization? And then you create criteria from that question. That question leads you to criteria to see if the solution is worthy of commercialization. For instance, is it manufacturable? Is it patent protected? Will the will it uh, cost a lot or cost, would it be competitive with competing solutions? Would, would the FDA approve it? A whole host of questions you have to answer. So I like to do these, address the selection of the problem and the selection of the solution and, and to, to see if you, it's worth taking further early on. So that, you know, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs I see, they get they fall in love with their concept or whatever problem. In fact, the, the jargon of innovation is also somewhat flawed because people say, I have an idea. So I, 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 I never say that. You know, I, my focus is on the problem. I don't care about solution because the pro deep understanding of the problem really leads you to the solution. And in fact, if your understanding is partial, your solution is going to be. And in fact, you see that all the time and new products come to market they go through iterations and converge on the perfect solution. And that's a reflection of better understanding of the problem. So I, I, I'm, I'm totally focused on problems and letting the problem tell me what, what I need to do. It's actually so simple. You know, it's, it's amazingly simple. 
you know, simple but not easy. I, I'm interested in any advice you have on the humility to be honest. I mean, I think as entrepreneurs, we're, we're naturally more optimistic. And, you know, the, the self-honesty to be like, ah, this really isn't as manufacturable as I would like to think it is. Or this, you know, even though I'm in love with this solution, this is, I guess I'm interested in the humility to come to the realization this is not worth commercializing. You know, I, for some reason, I've always been so, uh, passionate about my work. But I don't get totally vested in emotionally vested in a solution because I I realize that there are the best solution will always win and if it is not the best solution you should not even bother taking it forward and you have to be I I think I became a better entrepreneur when I became an investor and and because. I viewed as an entrepreneur, young entrepreneur, I viewed risk. I didn't actually view risk. I, I just looked at opportunities, right? Uh, to me, you know, you put in a bit of money and somehow within a short period of time, you have a winning company. But that's not how things are. So I, I, when I made a little bit of money and I started investing in other companies, I started thinking about it differently. I said, okay, how many different ways can I lose this money? so so it really made me a better as an entrepreneur i was then i incorporated those questions in my own work so i i would when i presented new concepts to investors or a new company i would address the questions that are in their head that they may not have asked and i say here are the questions here are the different ways you can fail and here are the risks for the business and this is how I plan to mitigate them. And, you know, people have told me not to talk about risks and failure. I think it's important as, for investors to know that you're actually thinking about it and you're, you don't have a blind side to it. And, and to me, that honesty about that is, is what we call humility. Uh, you know, lack of humility is to basically you're, you're making yourself believe uh, things that are not, not true. So I'm, you know, I've, I have had some really spectacular failures. In fact, one of the topics I talk about when I'm invited to talk about my failures, at, and I love doing that because it's, I dissect those failures and I can point to where I made those mistakes when I picked the wrong problem to solve or I picked the wrong business that. And then the day I realized that that was the wrong business model, I returned the remaining money to the investors and shut down the company. But I think you need to be honest about the, the you can't get carried away in the euphoria that, oh boy, I started a new company and I'm going to make millions of dollars. And I, I think thinking like an investor has helped me uh, immensely. It, it makes me think of that Warren Buffett quote where he says, I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor and I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman. Yeah, I think that's true. That's true. Um, well, we often like to cut these episodes in half. So we're about done with the first half of the interview. But for people who want to, to learn more, is, is RonnieTherapeutics.com the best place? Yeah, yeah, it, it has a fair amount of information. And there's also, if you Google Ronnie, there are lots of media stories in the past from the, and, and my work as an as a entrepreneur. So I, I love, you know, interacting with young entrepreneurs and sharing my experiences and helping them in any way I can.
that's so good. When I was when I was growing up as an entrepreneur, there were no other entrepreneurs around me, and I was it was a kind kind of a lonely journey. Uh, for the longest time, I started my first company in '79, and in New Jersey, and there was nobody there <laughs> to guide me. <laughs> well, we're glad there's guys like you to tell us about your 42 years of experience. Hopefully, we can hopefully we can learn from some of your mistakes instead of having to make them over again, right? Yeah, I mean, I actually think mistakes uh, are so important. And, and people say you learn from your mistake, but most people don't learn from their mistake because they, a lot of times they fail. They don't want to come face to face with what has happened. They just blame it on something or the other rather than themselves. And I think you've got to be honest about it. To, to get the benefit from the mistake, you've got to be honest and dissect it, understand it, and learn from it not just move on. Yeah, I can't think of a better way to, to end part one here. That's solid advice. Everybody, please tune in for, for part two. We're going to keep going with Mir. Thanks, everyone.